Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 9. Every year, again, part of the wisdom of, of the, the framing of, of the lectionary, which is our Bible teaching and reading plan, uh, every year on the Sunday before Lent, we read about the transfiguration of Jesus. Today is Transfiguration Sunday. It's why our table linens have gone to white. There's a sense of this being a, a moment to mark time before we enter into the valley. And there's so much goodness in the logic behind why we do it this way. And just to not bury the lead, we, we see Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration for who he really is because we're about to walk into the, the wilderness, the valley. And we live most of our lives, not on mountaintops, but in valleys. And when you're in the valley, it's easy to lose perspective. And so every year before we go into the valley, we say, here's Jesus. This is who he is. So that's what I hope we'll hold today, together today. I'm going to read eight short verses in Mark 9, and then we'll pray, and then we're just going to spend a few minutes together uh, looking, looking at Jesus. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly they looked around and they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask you for the ability to see Jesus today. God, we pray that we would, here on this Sunday, before we embark upon a Lenten journey, God, that you would give us a plan, that you would give us uh, access to an invitation, Lord, that we could participate and we would participate with you in some meaningful way. Father, we ask for your help, and we pray, God, that we would have eyes to see Jesus today, just like Peter and James and John saw Jesus, we want to see you the same way, God. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. So on one level, this is a non-repeatable phenomenon. Jesus was transfigured on the mountain one time. And so in a very real sense, when we read a passage like this, we gain access to a, a one-time transcendent moment between Jesus and his friends before the cross. On another level, I believe that we're invited to read the text and hope for moments of clarity and insight and encouragement that would be analogous to this, not directly analogous, but would have echoes. All of us need clarity from time to time. And while we will not stumble up to the top of Kennesaw Mountain and see Jesus embodied dazzling white, we can, however, 
hope for, long for, and ask for moments of clarity and insight as we live our lives. So I want you to try to read the text with me in both directions. One, a thing happened that we need to consider, marvel at, celebrate, learn from, and then there's an invitation to participate with God. Those can both be true as we hold this passage in this text. So first, before we get into the moment of transfiguration itself, I think it's really instructive for us to let Jesus teach us about how things happen. He takes his friends out of their normal environment in the valley, in the lowlands where they live most of their lives. And he says, we're going to go outside. We're going to go up a mountain. We're going to be by ourselves. I actually love the text. It says by themselves apart. (laughs) It's like Mark is wanting us to make sure we understand that they are disconnecting from their normal routines and rhythms. And there's just something really important before we think about what happened. I just want to say to you that your life can lull you to sleep. The routines of it, the grind of it, the busyness of it, the familiarity of it. And what happens to us sometimes, and you know this, some of you got in your car coming to church today and you don't even really know how you got from your driveway to here because you just sort of go on autopilot. We live our lives, if we're not careful, on a kind of autopilot. And that's not actually totally terrible. It's not even bad. However, what we see in the wisdom of Jesus in his interactions with his friends is that from time to time, he said, we're going to go on a field trip. Like from time to time, he says, time out, we're going to disrupt your routine and we're going to get into a place almost always like in, in creation. And we're going to give you an opportunity to see things in a way that you might otherwise miss. And I just have this sneaking suspicion that you and me, that we have the same invitation. It's good and right for you to occasionally step back from your routine so that you have a shot at seeing God in a new way. And that doesn't mean you have to climb big mountains. I mean, go for it if you can. But what happens sometimes when we think it has to be epic is we think like, well, this is only someone who has got lots of leisure space or a lot of money can do. Maybe your opportunity to follow Jesus into the wilderness is just to go on a walk on the Beltline and not put your AirPods in. Like even when we're out in creation, oftentimes we're still being inputted all the time. And what Jesus does in this moment is he's taking his friends, his three closest friends, and he's saying, in intimate company, I want you to get out of your routine because I want to show you something that you won't see when you're down in that valley, but something that you need to see so that you will live in light of that truth when you are living your life in the valley. So before we get into the content, I just want to say, I think it's important for you to occasionally disrupt your normal rhythms and get outside so that you can begin to be recreated, renewed, and met by God. I I love podcasting as much as you do, but there are times where I intentionally go out and I don't put anything, I don't input. And I was talking to someone who runs at the first service, he's a runner, and he said, you know, the last, in the last month, um, I've, I've not taken AirPods um, a couple of times. And he said, it was so disorienting that it was almost distressing. He's like out in creation. And he's like, I just, it was just like me, <laughs> me and God. 
I think occasionally we need to just get outside and we need to be in spaces where we have an opportunity to see things and hear things that we otherwise would miss if we're just head down plowing through life. So now the text. Number one, Jesus is transfigured. And the word means to change. It's used four times in the gospel, in the gospels, uh, and it, it, it speaks to a kind of radical transformation. And I think that oftentimes, and this is why it's so important before we get to Lent, uh, because oftentimes we forget that even for James and John and Peter, who knew Jesus, who spent time with him, who loved him, who, who believed him, who followed him, even they occasionally forgot who it was that they were dealing with. And what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration is Jesus pulls the veil back. He doesn't flex to make his light bulb get brighter. Like I think some people think of this as like Jesus is like flexing his God muscles. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, wow, you know, your light biceps are huge. (laughs) This was Jesus pulling a curtain back. And what he was saying to these three guys is like, this is who you're always dealing with. This is who you eat meals with. This is who you sleep beside. This is who you walk down the road with. And y'all, if it was possible for James and John and for Peter to have a kind of dulling sense of potential familiarity, then how much more so is it true for us? One of the invitations on Transfiguration Sunday when we read a passage like this is to step back and say, oh, that's who this is. The Jesus that you pray to when you pray, it's full of light and life and power and glory. This is who we follow. This is what this faith of ours is about. And so when Jesus pulls the veil back and shows them what's really going on in the energetic economy of God, he's saying, this is who I am. And he does it for a reason. Because we forget. We forget who we're dealing with. And we try to become uh, we try to like navigate our way through as if we're doing this by ourselves, like we're on our own. And most of us in this room, we wouldn't say that. We wouldn't say, I'm on my own, I'm doing this by myself. But if we look at our lives, oftentimes that's what our lives tell. Our lives tell us a story of self-reliance, of putting your head down, of trying to earn your way through, of trying to figure it out by yourself. We act oftentimes as if we are on our own. And if Jesus is trying to show his friends, you and me included, anything on the mountain of transfiguration, it's that you're not alone and that he is really powerful. He is the God of miracles. And increasingly in my life, I'm trying to repent of engineering a life that will be just fine without him. And to repent just means to step back. And maybe you have to go into the woods to see God tell you, hey, you're holding too much of this. Maybe they needed to climb a mountain to see that they, like you and me, were maybe tempted to engineer a life as if we began to be tempted to believe that 
God was a part of our life rather than the other way around. God's not, Jesus is not content to be a bolt-on to a really full, well-engineered life. He is so big, his life is so big that my life is a part of his life, not the other way. And so in a very real way, the disciples are made aware of who it is that they are in relationship with, who they're dealing with. And I think that we leak that awareness. And so occasionally we need to be reminded of who it is that we follow so that we won't be tempted to try to build a life without him. The second thing we see in this passage is that Moses and Elijah appear. And I just love it because it's so weird I mean, I've read commentaries and people are like, well, Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophetic tradition. So it's just that the law and the prophets are there. And, you know, I think that's awesome and true. I actually think they were really there because God can do whatever the heck he wants. Like, guys, don't let the age of reason strip you of a sense of wonder at the supernatural components of what it is that we believe. If God wants Moses and Elijah to be on top of a mountain chilling with Jesus, he can do that. And I love it because of how weird it is. I love it because we need to be disrupted every now and again. We need to be knocked back on our heels. I mean, this would have freaked Peter and, and James and John out. They would have been like, what in the world is going on? Like, it was like the all-star team together. And Luke tells us about, he, Luke gives us insight into what they were talking about. Mark is super brief. It's the shortest gospel. Mark's like getting stuff done. Luke pauses for a second. And he's like, I know what they were talking about. And I'm going to tell you in a second. I just want you to like feel the tension build in the room. <laughs> but here's what I take away from these two fellows being with Jesus on the mountain. Jesus doesn't stand alone. That the whole of the tradition of Judaism is expressed and culminated in Jesus and he stands in dialogue with the big story. This is why we don't unhook from the Old Testament. You don't have to like it all. There's some weird stuff in there. I was reading a psalm this morning in the daily office about like people's you know, teeth being kicked in. And I'm like, man, this is intense. But you can't unhook from the raw pre-Jesus world of the old covenant because Jesus came to fulfill. This is why we're people of the book. Jesus is a person of the book. He's a person, a part of the big story, the big picture. And I think Moses and Elijah in part are demonstrating that. We're with you, Jesus. So Luke, he tells us that they're talking about the Exodus. And I love that. The third, the third thing we see here is that Jesus is, according to Luke, leading a new or a second exodus. And Moses would have had the street cred to be talking about the exodus. Like he led the exodus, the first one. And Luke tells us that, that he, Moses and, and Elijah and Jesus are talking about a second or another exodus. And that's what this is all about. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to make us free. He came to lead us out of bondage and into freedom and it just blesses my socks off to think about these three guys on a mountain talking about freedom. And they're not talking about the way we use freedom in our American context. There's it's something different. 
Because to link this idea of Exodus, I think is really powerful because the Israelites were in bondage and God set them free from bondage. And then they wandered for a long time. And we're about to enter into the Lenten season where we're going to intentionally wander for just a short time. And I think about the the Jews, and I think like, I don't, I don't know if this is true or not, um, but I've read somewhere that like, if they had taken a super straight route, they probably could have got from like where they, from where they were to where they were headed in a few weeks. But it took them so long because, you know, it only takes a second to walk out of Egypt, but it takes a whole long time for Egypt to get out of you. And the, the Jews were just working that stuff through with God. And the Lenten season is an invitation for us to recognize that we must first be free from before we become free to do something or be something that he wants to set us free. That's why we confess our sin. We repent more. We focus on our mortality and our vulnerability and our brokenness more during the season of Lent. It's why I'm going to have a patinaed metal, i.e. not real skull on the lectern during the Lenten season, because I want you to think about the fact that you are made of fragile stuff, that your sin and your finitude and your brokenness, that these are things that God cares deeply about, and he wants to come and set us free. This morning, I was sitting on my couch I sit in the same place every day with coffee. It's like a thing for me. I I only sit in this one place on my couch when I'm praying. Uh, I sit other places when I'm watching TV or something like that. This is my my prayer spot. And it's become over the last um, decades a a place where I know my body knows what I'm going to do when I sit there. And I'm there this morning and I'm just like, feeling some places in my life to where I'm just frustrated and I I'm feel less than, than free. I feel less than what I want, what I long for. And I was just naming those things to God this morning. And I'm reminded that Jesus has come to lead and has led the second exodus and that he invites me to follow him out of bondage, out of brokenness, out of stuckness and into something that feels like home. That's on offer for all of us. That's what he's come to do. The fourth thing we see is that Peter attempts to prolong the experience. And I just, I really love Peter I, because I feel so like him. He's like the poster child for Enneagram sevens. He's just like, and we want to like make fun of him, you know, for getting out of the boat and sinking. I, the last I checked, you know, the other 11 never bothered to get out of the boat. Like Peter was always putting his foot in his mouth. I mean, the text here, I mean, Mark is trying to be nice to him. Mark's like, Peter said something and then Mark goes, he didn't know what to say, you know? And I'm sure none of you have that problem. That is a very common occurrence for me. And what I I love when I try to look at Peter through a, a charitable lens, through the same lens that Jesus would have looked through when he looked at Peter is that Peter essentially in this moment was just saying like, so much of my life is unclear. This feels really clear. Like, because of the stuff in Peter 
that just a few short chapters later would cause him to call down curses on himself and say he didn't know Jesus. That stuff was still there. But in this moment, he's looking at Jesus and he's like, man, I just need to hold on to this. This feels really clear. And we live our lives and we long for things to be clear. And they are sometimes, but they're not all the time. I mean, if there's anything that I feel in my bones when I hold a passage like this, it's that there are these moments in life where God makes everything clear and that we wish those moments were all the time, but that they do happen from time to time. So Peter's like, let's build some stuff. (laughs) And I just love him. Because he's basically saying the human response. He's like, I just wish we could make this last. When I was uh, in college, I was an incorrigible hippie. And one of my favorite bands... um, it was a southern band called Driving and Crying. And Kevin Kenny uh, was the front man for Driving and Crying. And I saw him recently at Eddie's Attic. The years have not been it's, been, it's been tough, but he's super talented. <laughs> and in one of his solo albums, he has a line, and I don't think Kevin's a Christian. I have no idea. I've never asked him about that. I don't know him. But I don't believe I would be surprised if he were if he were Christian in the in the same way that I might wonder you you would be. And he wrote yet he writes a song where he says in one of his songs, "I'm coming down from the mountain. I've seen the lofty glory. I will go again someday, but for now I'm coming down." When Jesus concludes. <laughs> When Moses and Elijah are gone and we're told it's just Jesus, he looks at his friends and he says, let's go down the mountain now. You can't live on the mountaintop. You got to figure out how to carry what you know in a moment of clarity in such a way that it can hold you when you're in the valley. And I find Peter so instructive because the moment of clarity for him did not keep him from messing up. It didn't. But maybe it's what kept him from ending his life like Judas did. Maybe it's what made him move through failure into something else. Because he knew something about Jesus. And I believe that the Lord wants for each and every one of us to know some things about Jesus that will keep us not from failure, but will move us through failure so that we become the kinds of people who know what it means to be deeply loved and welcomed. Sorry. There's a lot of life on the other side of pain. There's a lot of living to do when you come down the mountains. 
And my prayer for us as we step into this Lenten season is that we would walk into places of repentance and fasting and confession in light of who Jesus is. He is worth trusting and following. Amen. So I want us to hold this question for reflection. And uh, it's been amazing to me because I'm hearing more and more of you come up to me unsolicited and say, I'm starting to journal. And I think it might be just because you want me to stop talking about how I want you to journal. Um, But I do want you to journal and I want you to think about whether or not this week you could hold this these questions in your journaling time. What parts of your life would benefit from Jesus leading a second exodus in you? I.e., where would you like to experience more freedom? And I mean freedom from before you get to freedom to. I trust that you'll understand what I mean. If not, journal about it. Let's be still just for a few moments and then we'll come to communion together.